Well, we are continuing in our look at the book of Isaiah. And this morning we are in the book, uh, in the chapter 5 of Isaiah. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open up there. We won't be jumping around this morning in the scriptures. Any other scriptures I'm going to show you will be on the screen. Um, but I want us to, to corporately look at the, the, the same seven verses. Actually, we're going to look at eight verses. But the first seven verses in the book of Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to read them real quick. And then we're going to talk a little bit about them. I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. Oh, that's okay. Thank you. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a, hill, a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. And I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. If you look at this from through some eyes of scholars, up on the screen you'll see scholars, and they're not completely in agreement, but they are pretty much in agreement that this is divided into various sections. The very first section is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And they, this one particular scholar wrote that he felt that these were the words of a troubadour, a male friend of the groom. He was a singer, and we'll talk more about that in a second. The second set of verses, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, are Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, speaking. And he says very clearly in these verses, he's speaking to the people of Judea, I mean to Judah and Jerusalem. And then this, the next set, verses 5 and 6, it's still Yahweh speaking, but he's not just speaking to the people, but he's literally making a proclamation for the whole of creation to hear. And then finally, in verse 7, the troubadour comes back in, but now he's in the voice of the prophet. It's still the same idea of someone other than God who loves God serving and honoring him by speaking the words that he spoke. So we've got verses 1 through 7 broken down as this troubadour singing a song, and then Yahweh speaking, and then the prophet coming in and rounding it off. Scholars are convinced that this was indeed a song. And this was how it was presented. When, when the prophet went to the people of Israel, he spoke, excuse me, he sang these words, literally. And the people of Israel were kind of confounded because the beginning of the song sounded like a love song. I will tell you the story of my beloved, the one who had a vineyard, the one who had set up his vineyard on the fertile hillside. And then it transitions into this really weird, unloving story. 
And the people got really upset. Now, the thing that we don't can, we don't connect very well with in this story is this guy is talking about planting a vineyard. Well, I don't know very many people in this community that have vineyards. Am I wrong? We don't grow grapes up here. So we don't connect with this idea. But the Judeans, the people of Jerusalem, that was the major crop. That was the major product that they produced because their, gra- their ground was perfect for it. So they fully understood what it meant to have to put together all the work involved with being a vineyard owner, a vineyard owner. And the purpose of growing grapes was to get grapes so that they could make wine because that was a major, major source of income and it provided drink for just about everyone in the area. Now, that's not part of our culture. But you need to understand, as this prophet was singing this song, these people really got into it. They really started to get into it. But as the song progressed, they were like, what? What? And literally, by the end, they were frustrated and upset. And that was the whole intent. I want to have you listen to something. This was so cool. I was studying this week, and God said, go to YouTube. What? Go to YouTube. See if there's a song about this. Okay. So I did.
that the people were listening to this, they started out thinking it was a love song. And as it went along, they were like getting really into the story. And they're like, what? 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 And by the end, as the prophet has their full attention, the words are, you people are the vineyard. You people. When God came looking for good grapes, he found bad grapes. And his words were, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I've already done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield bad? In the ancient world, the bride and the groom were not allowed to have contact with each other prior to the wedding night. So all of the arrangements for the marriage and all of this planning for the wedding was done by proxy. There was usually a male friend of the groom who did all of this spokesman. He was the best man, if you will. And his job was to go between the families and to negotiate. And if there ever came a point where the groom had something against his bride, it was the point of the, the best man it was the job of the best man to go and make that complaint. And so that's what this song is about. It's this idea that he says in verse 1, Let me sing about the one I love, my friend. Let me sing about his vineyard. And I'm going to tell you about his vineyard. He goes into this whole story. But then all of a sudden it's like the groom pushes the best man aside and says, Alright, let me talk. Let me tell you what I found. And then the groom kind of calms him down and pulls him back at the last and says, that's what we were talking about. The Lord Almighty and you people are his vineyard. We're the good grapes, folks. It's a powerful story. If you were in that, that culture and hearing this, whoa, it would have just gripped your heart. And I told you, the idea of making good grapes was so that they could get good wine. Well, what does it take to plant a vineyard? We don't, like you said, we don't know, but we can look in here and we can see that process. If you look between verses 2 and 4, you will see that God, the vineyard owner, went through this specific process in order to prepare the vineyard so that he could get a harvest of good grapes. First, he found a place that, has, that was fertile ground. It was perfect. It was hilly. It had the right composition. It was perfect. He then came to this fertile ground and he turned the soil. And the reason he did that, he had to prepare the soil for the plants. One of the things he was doing in turning the soil was he had to remove any rocks and stones. Because rocks and stones would cause the, 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 the tender uh, root system to not properly grow and there would be weakness. And so the root rocks and stones had to be pulled out before the vines could be planted. And then, once he had the rocks all taken care of and gotten all of it cleared, then it says that the vineyard owner went and took the choicest of vines. He went and got the best vines he could find. And he planted them in the vineyard. Well, 
As most of you who do any growing know, it doesn't happen overnight that you get a harvest. It literally takes time. It literally takes upwards of two years for a harvest to truly come out of a vineyard. I learned this through my study. Now, what did the vineyard owner do during the time that he's waiting for the harvest? He, he takes the rocks and the stones that he pulled out of the soil and he says he builds a wall of protection around his vineyard. Did you notice in the video, after it says, I'm going to knock it down and turn it into a wasteland, did you see what they showed? They showed goats trampling and chewing. Literally, that's what would have happened. It would have become a wasteland and the wild animals and beasts would have come and just chewed up on all these vines, these choice vines that were supposed to provide good fruit for the good wine. And one of the scriptures, I mean, one of the commentators that I read said something that was so dramatic for me and so powerful. And when I saw that video, I was like, oh my word. He said, imagine this, folks. If God declares over your life, not you personally, but I'm talking about, you know, the Israelites. Imagine God declares over these Judeans and these Jerusalemites, I planted you, I cared for you, I took care for you, nurtured you, did everything I could possibly do. And what did I end up with? Garbage. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take all my protection away from you. The end result is anything can come your way. And the commentator that I was reading said, imagine any cloven-hooved devil could have access because the protection of the Almighty was no longer there. That's a scary thought to me. That's a very scary thought. It says in the scriptures that God, the vineyard owner, continued to wait for this harvest by building, and while he waited, he built a watchtower. Not just a little hut like we talked a few weeks ago in the vin, in the, in the, in the, in the thing, which is a temporary shelter. He literally built a watchtower because this was supposed to be a permanent thing. It says he also dug out or built a wine press or a wine vat, depending on what translation you're reading. And that literally means that he had to cut into the rock and, 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 and sculpt it almost. And it, it was two separate levels, one for trouncing out the grapes and then a little channel between the two so that the juice could flow into this vat, and then that vat would hold the juice until it could be then put into wineskins and then, and then uh, converted into wine through the aging process. And so all of this was done, and then the vineyard owner waited. And as I said, it takes a full two years or more for the vines to mature so a good crop can take place. And what happens? The vineyard owner comes and finds bad or unfit fruit. So the question is, for me, what was the standard that was being used for calling, un, calling to the Jerusalemites unfit fruit or bad fruit? Well, if you look at verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7, you see, somebody read that chapter, that verse if you have it open still. Okay. Justice, bloodshed, righteous or righteousness and cries. Okay? The Hebrew is mishpat, which means justice, mishpat, which means bloodshed, tzedakah, which means righteousness, or tzedakah, which means a cry of anguish. There's a poetic thing going on here. 
There's this, look at the words. The word that God was looking for was mishpacht and tzedakah. But what he found was mispak and sa'aka. Very similar sounding words, but two totally and opposite things. God wanted justice, instead he found oppression and bloodshed. God wanted righteousness, and instead he found the people crying out. Because as remember, we talked last week, the, the leadership of the nation at that point had gotten themselves fat off the poor. And so God said, I prepared for you. I did all that I could for you. And when I come back, I find this. Now, what are the grapes being compared to? What is the standard? Well, if you'll turn just over on the page in your book as you're looking, you'll see chapter 5, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 16 says, But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. And the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Oh look, you see any words that are familiar there? Let me go back to that slide. God himself will be exalted by his mishpat, his justice. And the holy God will show himself holy by his tzedakah. So what is God doing when he goes to the grapes? He's saying when he walks to look at his grapes, looking for good fruit, do you reflect me? Do I see in you semblance of my mishpat, my justice? Semblance of my tzedakah, my righteousness? Or do I see the opposite? And the declaration, obviously, was that God saw the opposite in his people. And the thing that's so cool, and this is, I want to read to you a quote that I got from one of the commentators. His name was Oswald. He wrote, this verse is of great theological importance. For it expresses the truth that makes God truly God. What sets God off as divine is neither God's overwhelming power nor God's mysteriousness. Rather, what marks God as God is the essential justice and righteousness of God's character. These characteristics are what must eventually humiliate all human beings in God's presence. When you as a human being come into the very presence of God, you will recognize perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And as Isaiah said in the very next chapter, woe is me, for I'm in the presence and it's not in me. And that's the standard that God, the vineyard user, vineyard owner, used when he declared whether or not the people of Judea, the people of Jerusalem, were good grapes or bad grapes. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, we as a people, as the Church of the Nazarene, we have three core values. 
We are a Christian people. We are a missional people. We are a holy people. And I want to talk to us this morning about this idea of holy people. We said this morning in our worship time, God is kadosh. He is holy. When, the, when you walk into his throne room, what do you hear? Hadosh, kadosh, kadosh, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we're saying we want to be holy people, what does that mean? Well, in our theology, we say, when you first come to know Jesus as your personal Savior, you are initially sanctified. That's the theological term. You initially enter into this cleansing all of your sins are forgiven, you're, you're now washed white, you're, you're, you're clean, and you're right in God's presence. But then it comes a point in our life where we recognize, no matter how, how much I want to love God, there's still this desire in me to do things that are not of God. There's this desire to just not do the right things, to not live righteously, to not live justly. And I can't seem to fight it. It's just this inner thing that just kind of compels me, draws me. And we recognize that and we go, God, I can't live like this. I hate this. Isn't there any way to be rescued from this? And the Lord says, of course there is. If you will just yield your entire being to me, my Holy Spirit will entirely sanctify you. Cleanse all of that stuff, that carnality out of you. And so we call that an instantaneous moment, just like when you get saved. It's an instantaneous moment. Entire sanctification. So that's when God, the Holy Spirit, has full control over you are now His subject. He is your Lord. See, at one point, Jesus is your Savior. Then He becomes your Lord. Now we just tool around, living the life God wants us to live. We're following the steps we're supposed to do. Trying to do the things, the words of the book, as we talk to the kids. And all of a sudden, we realize that we're becoming more and more and more like God, like Jesus. And what does that mean? We're learning to live justly. We're learning to live righteously. The attributes of God are becoming more about who we are. That's, in theological terms, called progressive sanctification. There's a moment where I am entirely sanctified, but then I become more and more and more and more like God until the moment when I take my final breath and I enter into the very presence of God, and theologically that's called glorification, being made perfect. Okay? So, here I am, a sinner. I come to recognize my sinful state and my, the fact that I failed against God. I become initially sanctified. I am saved as a Christian. I now walk in this new life of Christianity, but I recognize there's a carnal nature within me fighting against the Holy Spirit of God, and I have to submit that and consecrate that to God, and in an instant I am entirely sanctified. Now Jesus is my Lord. Now I am walking in that new strength and power and cleansing of the Holy Spirit, and I become more and more Christ-like, progressively becoming more and more like Christ, and then finally I am glorified as I enter into the presence of God. I am made perfect. That's what it means to be a holy person. But it's real easy to say those words. It's not so easy to live out that progressive sanctification. And so my question to us this morning is this. What does that look like? What does progressive sanctification look like? This is what it looks like. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, there's a twofold thing going on there. The command is 
Work out your salvation. That's something you do. But it is God who works in you to will and to act out in, in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, it's this joint thing. There's this, I want to say, a symbiotic relationship between us and God. God calls us to be holy, and he's going to empower us to live a holy life through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the cleansing power of his Holy Spirit, and he expects us to walk in that holiness. And so we are to work out our salvation, becoming progressively more and more like Christ. Um, if you look at the comparison between Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, and Isaiah chapter um, 5, verse 16, there's that comparison. God is holy, God is just, God is righteous. He expects us to be holy and righteous. And how in the world do you get there, and how does this work? Well, I was listening this morning, or this week, to a, uh, a, a, an audio recording of an interview with a guy named Scott Daniels. He's the pastor of Napa First Church of the Nazarene in Napa, Idaho. And he is uh, a big mucky muck in our denomination. He used to be uh, a dean at Azusa Pacific University and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and in this thing, somebody asked him, describe for me holiness. Tell me how this works. Tell me, what does it mean to live a life of holiness? And what Scott said was this. I've been married for 24 years. And I can point back to a specific day and a specific time and a specific moment when a minister stood over my wife and I and said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And in that moment, in that instant, we were married. But I can tell you, 24 years later, I am much more married to that woman than I was in the moment that I was declared married to her. And what has changed? I've learned to live out the married life. I've learned what it means to wash dishes together. I've learned what it means to work on a budget together. I've learned what it means to raise children together. I've learned what it means to put Christmas decorations away together. These were his words, not mine. I don't do dishes. <laughs> Ask my wife. If I do, it's because I'm loving her or I want something. Now, my point is this. He progresses in his married life, day by day. His status doesn't change. He's still married from the moment he's married all the way through. But he becomes more and more married, if you will. And he said, that's what it means to live a holy life. There comes an instant where God himself does this magical, wonderful, glorious, mysterious work of cleansing us from the carnal, carnal nature and gives us the power and the strength to live a holy life. But then we have to walk it. That's the working out of our salvation. Well, how in the world do you do that, Pastor Bob? How am I supposed to get at the end to be called a good grape? Well, I tell you, look in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Okay, but if I'm in this relationship with God and He's giving me power, but He's expecting me to do my part, what in the world does this transformation of my mind mean? Because quite honestly, folks, I was taught 20 years ago, when I came into the church, or 25 years ago, or 30-something years ago, whatever it was, when I came into the church, oh, well, the Holy Spirit of God does it all, and you're saved and sanctified, and you're good, and now you're on your way to glory. In reality, it ain't like that, folks. You don't live a holy life 24-7 without some struggle, without some stress, without some frustration. And I can tell you, if you look at Romans chapter 7, there's such a thing as called a besetting sin. And what that means is it don't make no difference how hard you work. You're going to fall every stinking time that sin presents itself, the temptation. It doesn't change. No matter if you're a saved Christian, a sanctified Christian, a progressively sanctified Christian, the only time that's not going to be a problem is when you glorify it. Well, then how can I be called a bad grape if I can't do anything about it? Work out your salvation by the transformation of your mind, the renewing of your mind. Well, God, how in the world do I do that? You know what? Twenty-something years ago when I first came to the church in Nazarene, I didn't know anything about the next thing I'm about to talk to you about, but I learned about it in the last few years, and I heard about it less than a month and a half ago, and every stinking one of you could have gone to the same seminar, and you would have heard the same thing, but you didn't have any time to go show up for that seminar that your pastor reminded you about three times through an email. Anyway, bottom line is this. I'm not going to slap in the I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Please don't take offense at that. But really and truly, this is something that's new research, but it's not new. Okay? Now I'm getting into the world of psychology. Bear with me a little bit. There is a new understanding of how the brain works. It's called neuroplasticity. Now that's a big, huge word, and you probably don't care to memorize it. But you've probably heard about these brain games that you can play. Have you ever heard of the, of the company called Lumosity? Lumosity gives you exercises to enhance your brain power and to help you become a better thinker and a stronger person and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I don't need any of that garbage in my life. But God showed me this really cool thing about neuroplasticity and something that the people of this world understand. But now as a Christian, I can really apply it to my life, and that's this. Neuroplasticity says we form habits. You learn to do something the same way every single time because it gives the same result. So if you like the taste of carrot cake and you have a really good recipe for it, you follow that recipe and when it's all said and done, mmm, carrot cake, I love it. And if you do that same recipe every single time, you get the same result. Mmm, carrot cake, I love it. Mmm, carrot cake, I love it. Mmm, carrot cake, I love it. The problem is, when you equate that to your brain, and there's this temptation to do something that really makes you feel good, but you know isn't good for you, and you know isn't right, that process from time of temptation to time of enacting and sinning, there is a synapse that takes place in your brain. It's a pathway of electrical charge from, from center to center, and it, synapse, it makes this route. And if you do the same thing over and over and over again, the scientists have learned that a rut forms in your brain. Not a physical rut but a pathway for these neurons 
to the synapses to connect in such a way that when you are receiving the stimulus, you instantaneously do what the stimulant, what the rut tells you to do, so you can get that response. Have you heard of Pavlov's dogs? When they ring the bell, they feed the dog, causes them to, to salivate. They ring the bell, they feed the dog, it causes the dog to salivate. They ring the bell, withhold the food, but the dogs continue to salivate. Why? Neuroplasticity, this synapse thing, okay? And you can break that by forming new habits. When the stimulus comes saying, do this, so you'll feel really good at the end, and you say, I will not. And you find an alternate thing to do, an alternate process to reach maybe even the same end result, but you're not going to go that simple path anymore. For example, say I am addicted to my credit cards. Now, I'm not saying I am. I'm just saying, use this as an example. Say I'm addicted to the use of my credit cards and I don't trust God to provide for my needs. So all of a sudden, a bill comes up and I don't have any money. That's okay. Whip out the plastic. My bill is paid. But God then taps me on the shoulder and says, I thought we talked about this. I thought I said to you this was not pleasing to me. And you promised me you weren't going to whip out the plastic anymore. And you didn't have the strength to cut up the card, but you at least promised me it would not come out of your wallet until you were debt free. So that you could just use it and pay it off and use it and pay it off and use it and pay it off. But instead, you whipped it out because you had a bill to pay. You didn't trust me. You didn't give me the opportunity to bring money into your place. Now you have to confess your sin and repent and try again. So another bill comes. I don't have the money. I am not going to reach in my wallet, God. I'm going to trust you. And I don't know how this money's going to come about, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to wait for you. And the next time something like that happens, there's still going to be the flinch to reach for your wallet and you're going to have to go, no, I'm not going to reach for my wallet. God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to wait on you. And then the next time something happens like that and you need some money and you're going to reach for your... No, and you have to force yourself. But eventually, there will no longer be a reaching for your wallet. Eventually, you will have rerouted through the process of neuroplasticity, you will have rerouted the response in your brain and the way your brain works so that when the stimulation comes it says, you need to pay this bill, you'll say, oh God, without even thinking about going to your plastic. Okay? That's the process of neuroplasticity, and that's what Romans chapter 12 is talking about when it says the transformation by the renewing of your mind. You no longer have to live the way you lived when you were in sin. Yes, you have the power of God to give you the power that you can do what you have to do, but you also have a responsibility according to Romans, I mean Philippians chapter 2, that we're supposed to work out our salvation. And that means it's a twofold process. God does his part, you do your part. God does his part, you do your part. And what happened with the Israelites back in Isaiah chapter 5? They were called bad grapes. Why? Because they didn't do their part. God did everything. He prepared the soil. He chose the best vines. He took out all the rocks. He waited. He did everything he was supposed to do. God provided every possible need for every possible need. 
and the end result was bad grapes. Why? Not because of God, but because of the people involved. So where am I at in this for me? How in the world, Pastor Bob, am I supposed to live out in such a way that I can no longer follow these bad paths, but I can start doing the good things to become more and more and more Christ-like? Right here, folks. I'm not promoting any particular book, but I am telling you, if you get that book and read it, it will tell you all about these different spiritual disciplines. Prayer, fasting, meditation, study, simplicity, solitude, submission, confession, worship, guidance, celebration. This is how you practice what it means to be a Christian. Those 12 items... And we don't have time this morning to talk about that. But these 12 items are how you live out your faith. And so, if you want to be a good grape, if you want to provide good wine for God's use in His kingdom, you need to acknowledge and recognize that it is a symbiotic relationship between God and you. God desires relationship with you. And in that desire, he demands, he doesn't request, he demands that you be a good grape. He provides all that is necessary for you to become a good grape. And this is key to the equation. You have the choice whether you're going to be a good grape or not. You must choose to become a good grape through submission to God's Holy Spirit and through the practice of becoming more and more like God. Let's pray.